0: In the land of the free, in the home of the nerds, it's episode 196 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason I'm saying that is I'm in Washington, D.C. for the big D.C. in D.C. event. Going to be covering a whole bunch of stuff that you're actually going to see on our social media pages, on our website. Keep checking back with that. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, and Down and Nerdy So much stuff going on. Not going to reveal everything that's going on right now, though. Just follow us on social media and on our website, and you're going to be hearing from so many great people, so many great stuff, almost just like we had at San Diego Comic-Con. Going to be a lot of similar stuff going on at DC and DC. This week, though, I've got Gabriel Rodriguez on the show from IDW's Sword of Ages. I'm sure you know him from Lock and Key as well. Going to be talking about Sword of Ages and what's it like to write it and do the art for it. A whole bunch of other stuff, and you know I'm going to ask him about the Lock and Key TV series as well. A whole bunch of nerd news to get to. We're also going to be talking about The Magicians this week. and reviewing the Season 3 premiere, but up next, two new comics. We'll be talking about them on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Warren Simon, the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Get out the long box, the tablet, or the laptop. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and something that... I kind of expected to be on a screen before it was on the page, but hey, I'll take it either way. It's Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe, number one, of course, with Valiant Entertainment, written by our buddy Elliot Rahal, art by Joe Bennett and Bellardino Bravo, Ulysses Ariola doing the colors, and Dave Sharp on the letters. Now it's very clear in the front of this book that Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe is set in its own world. So basically what that means is it's out of continuity. And all bets are off. And also in the description of this book, it's plainly told, although I will give a spoiler alert just in case, that ninjack actually betrays MI6, but it's not as obvious as it sounds. I could tell you that right now. And you know if you're a Valiant fan at all that it's probably not as simple as all that. And it isn't. the story. It tells you right away basically what's going on. It really sets the stage with... Somebody, and I won't spoil it, this is one thing I won't spoil. It's somebody that Ninjak knows very well that we see at the very beginning of this issue. And you kind of know right away what's happening, why things are going south, but you don't know where it's going to lead until you get to the middle of the book and find out why Ninjak is actually betraying MI6 in the first place. So I will say that it is for a good reason. It's not like this is one of those things where he goes rogue and he's a bad guy in this. That much I can tell you. That is not happening. But think about this. He's going to betray MI6. And if you're a Valiant fan at all, what do you think's going to happen when that happens? So this is one of those things where if you're not familiar with Valiant, you're going to be surprised by a lot of the stuff. But if you are familiar with Valiant, you're going to say, yeah, that sounds about right as you keep reading this book. Or, yeah, I could see why they do that. The, the steps that they take once that happens you understand how this ends up, the, the title of this ends up being was, what it is. But what this also is, is it's a great setup for what will eventually be the Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe series. Because this is one of those books where they want it to be more of a companion for the show than other things are. You've, you've seen comics that are related to shows before, and Valiant seems set on making this something that is not necessarily required reading, but gives you very much an extra look into why things are go- are doing what they're doing, why things are that are going on are going on. You're going to find that in this book, and I think that that's why. This is actually a good thing to do this before the series even comes out, because then you set a nice baseline, and I'm sure they'll revisit some of the stuff, but at least you're setting a nice baseline to where... If you can't cover something in the show, you'll cover it in the comic and it'll make sense. And then, I mean, in the book, there should be no, it should be no surprise. There's great action in there. There's a couple of fight scenes with Ninjak and a specific Valiant character that you're going to know. That I was like, yeah, I, I, I've been waiting for a fight like that. And it was very, very cool to see that played out on the page. And then this kind of very much feels like the opening salvo to something much, much bigger for Valiant fans. I know there's going to be more of these books as well, and we don't really have an exact date of when Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe is going to be coming out as far as the TV portion, but it just feels like this is very much the beginning to something that's going to be the snowball that rolls down the hill and ends up being a giant boulder by the time it gets to the bottom. So that was very. if that's what Elliot Rahal was going for in this book... And then bravo because that's exactly how it felt to me and ninja and there it just felt like everybody was who they usually are in the books that you see them in you know what i mean like you see somebody else write a character like Ninjak and it's not matt kent and, and it's not anybody that else that's familiar with with Ninjak. and there's no drop off here and I, now grants we don't get to see every character but we get to see a few and it doesn't seem like there's a drop-off there in, in the art. I don't know if Valiant has some secret lab where they're just growing these great artists and they just happen to get a great artist every time in every book. But I've said this a million times on the show, make it a million and one. If you're looking for art consistency, Valiant has it. In almost every book they have, the art is great and everything just falls right into place. Ninjak vs. The Valiant Universe, number one, no different. This is going to be a poll for me. I can't wait for the series as well. Hopefully that comes out real, real soon. Here's something that we did a story about. I think it was right around San Diego Comic-Con, and it's finally out. Battlestar Galactica vs. Battlestar Galactica, number one from Dynamite Entertainment, written by the great Peter David. Johnny Desjardins does the art. I know I might have butchered that name. I went for it. Mohan does the colors, and Taylor Esposito does the letters. Great color by John Cassidy. And Laura Martin as well. Now, again, I have to do a couple of spoilers here, just because I can't I can't even talk about the book without spoiling a little bit. So a little bit of a spoiler alert. Basically, everybody thinks that Commander Kane and the Pegasus were destroyed in a battle with the Cylons. They weren't. So what ends up happening is is there's a really touching part to this book as well, and there's a very emotional uh, back and forth, and it has to do with a letter dictation. And that's all I'll give you on that. And, and it's it's a moment that you really didn't expect to get, or at least I didn't anyway, in this book. And it was very, very cool and very humanizing for at least one of these characters. And I thought that that actually made me care more about the characters as it went on. I mean, I know it's Battlestar Galactica, but you, but you know what I mean. In that moment, you're like, huh, I really feel for this person sort of thing. Now, what's happening is the Pegasus is following a distress signal. And they kind of get shocked by what they find. And it, it's one of those things where there was a disagreement on the ship, too, as to whether or not they should follow the distress signal. And then it's one of them turns out being right. I can tell you that right now. And what we find out when they do follow it and where they get to where they're going and find who they find, what we find out is something that I thought was pretty darn shocking, especially for Bad All-Star Galactica fans and where this story is going to lead and what we find out from that revelation is, to me, going to be the most interesting part of this story going forward. And again, not something I'm going to spoil for you. I want you to discover this on your own when you read the book. But if you're a Battlestar Galactica fan, this should make you all in. Okay, that's, And that's just based on part of this book because we go from the Pegasus Then you get to the second half of this book, and it's the Galactica with Sheba and Amada. And they're basically under attack right away by the Cylons. So it's almost wasting no time at all. And then something happens, and you know that if the Cylons bail, there's something really, really bad that's going to be coming. And that's kind of where, I mean, you see the nice camaraderie between the crew of the Galactica and it just feels familiar and it feels right and seeing Sheba on the ship as well and it just makes sense and then you see what happens at the end of this book and you wonder if okay this is where everything's going to start this is where it's going to kick off into the next issue so I'm not saying that this felt like a zero issue but it very much felt like a stage setter to me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I mean, and as far as the art goes, art was pretty solid. I would say it's it's very much had an old school finish. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It it very much had, to me, like a Bronze Age type finish. But for a book like this, where it's kind of a throwback in a, in a way, I felt like that was kind of necessary. But the detail was very, very good there. So I definitely enjoyed the art. The story... I'm not going to say it was a knockout great story, but it makes sense and it certainly makes me intrigued as to where it's going to go and how these two worlds are going to collide. So I can't really say that this is a pull for me because again, I wasn't knocked out by it, but I I dug the art and I am interested to see how things are going to move forward. So I'll give this a pickup and hopefully the second issue really kicks things into gear And I know I said that that revelation was something huge for Battlestar Galactic fans. So if you're a diehard Battlestar fan, this might be a pull for you. You might enjoy this a little bit more than I did. I like Battlestar. but I'm not a huge, huge fan. If you are that one revelation alone in the middle of this book, might make it a pull for you. So keep that in mind. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, going to talk all things Season 3, Episode 1. Spoiler-filled review of The Magicians is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is Jay Taylor from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Like we talked about last week, magic is gone, and we need to try to find it. It's our Season 3 spoiler-filled review of The Magicians on Sci-Fi, and basically what this centers around is Quentin and Julia at this point, and we try to find out why, or at least Quentin and Julia are trying to find out why, she still has a little bit of a spark, of magic and it, it just seems to not be certain i mean we you saw the spark literally at the end of season two and then you go into season three and by the way spoiler filled review from here on out just in case you didn't know so we we see her to be able to do little things and she even says you know there's nothing i can really do with this and it's, it looks very bleak and then josh comes downstairs at break bills and says hey i might be able to help i know a guy and they basically go it's it's and it's a god, by the way, so they go to basically the god of parties, it seems like, because he throws these epic parties and there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on, and he tells them to come back when they're fun, meeting Julie and Quentin. And they end up getting hammered and do this doing this dance to get in. If you haven't seen the season three three premiere yet. Worth the price of admission just for that. Great job, by the way, to Jason and Stella on that. Very nice performance. So to kind of continue with their part of the story, you basically have to get this guy to open up and find out how he can help them restore magic. And at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to be much help at all, really. And at first it looks like they have a chance to to see a person that might be able to help them, and then you find out that that person's dead. So... They don't really get to help out that much. Now let's turn our attention to Elliot and Margot and Fillory, who are dealing with the invading fairies in a very creepy way. One of the fairies is carrying around an eye, which we later find out is Margot's eye, and that's how she's spying on them. So Elliot's trying to get figure out a way to get rid of the fairies. And at this point, too, by the way, Fenn, his wife, has gone insane. She's wrapping up logs in blankets and pretending it's a baby. She was she did the same thing with a bunny at one point in the episode. So they kind of drop subtle hints on certain characters, Fen being one of them, that she's nuts. So I'm not sure how, what the solution for that is, but she's crazy. And what we end up finding out from all of this when Elliot's trying to do everything he can... To figure out how to get rid of the fairies, and that's when we are introduced to yes, the Great Cock. The new character that everybody has been talking about, and a brilliant character. I mean, this character breaks the fourth wall when Elliot says, How long would this quest take? And the and the Great Cock says, Well, about a season. And it's just a very off-color and funny character, but at the same time, very majestic. In a, in a weird, kind of crazy way. Maybe one of the most creative creatures in magicians in these three seasons. In a lot of ways, not just visually, but the way that the character presents itself, I think is in a very unique way to a show that's done a lot of unique things with their characters. And what's funny is is that they find out that the fairies are using bunnies for messaging. Because, of course, Elliot can't, can't contact Quentin and vice versa, so that's how they're sending messages to one another. And, and what's funny is, is that they're supposed to be looking for a book that, ironically enough, the Great Cox says is in a library in New Jersey. So apparently the key to to, to fixing magic is in a library in New Jersey. Who would have known? It's, all, it's actually called Tale of the Seven Keys and has no author, and no pages either, they find out. But what was funny was when they were sending messages back and forth to each other, and the bunnies, there is like a thousand of them all talking at the same time, and they all seem to be saying "the great cock" at some point in in their conversation. And it's just a bunch of bunnies whispering the words "the great cock," and I just, it was just hilarious, absolutely hilarious, because it just wouldn't stop. And the conversation between Elliot and the great cock when they're talking to each other, it was. There were times where it was hilarious, but they just play so well off of each other. Those are two characters. I could see an entire episode of them just having a conversation, and I think it would be a fantastic episode. I think it would be hilarious. I think it would be something that I, you know any fan of The Magicians would enjoy. But now we know we've got this epic quest to look forward to and finding out where these keys are. But here's another thing that kind of struck me from this episode. And it's funny that we talked to Jade Taylor last week who plays Katie on the show. You know, Penny pays her a visit. We know that Penny's not supposed to leave the library for very long because time speeds up and his super cancer could kill him. So he steals away a couple minutes with Katie. She tells him to go. And then we see Marley Matlin come back, who plays Harriet on the show. And she's like, What are you doing? Why are you just sitting here not trying to restore magic? Don't you want to save him? So then she she gives her a book and it's full of pages and it's this really tiny book. She's like, look, you need to fix this because you're going to need to pay me back for all the stuff that I did for you to get this. So I'm wondering if this book that Katie has is the key to unlocking this Tale of the Seven Keys book to find, to finally fill out those pages because apparently the first part of the quest for Elliot's not going to be easy because it lies beyond the realms of their kingdom and that doesn't go well when the king leaves and stuff like that so it's just it seems like everybody has their part in this quest and even the great cock says you can't do it alone Elliot because Elliot says this is something he could easily you know mess up but Now the great cock says he has to get his friends together. So eventually we know they're all going to come together anyway. But it's just interesting that it seems like every character has their little piece of the puzzle. And then you enter Alice, who we see at the end of the episode. And she's, I don't know if that's a vampire that was sucking the blood out of her wrist or what was going on. But she's stuck at this crap hole diner. And she's trying to figure out, you know, what's chasing her. And how she can defend herself against it without magic. And apparently, she can't. She cannot defend herself against Loria. So, she's got to get a warning device. We don't know what that warning device is, but that is what she finds out. And then that's kind of where the episode ends, was with Alice. So, we don't really know what's going on with her. We don't know where she is, but we know it looks like she's on... She's at least on Earth. We know that much. She is in. She's not in the realm of break bills or fillery or anything like that. And while... Quentin was kind of tripping out at this party because the the, uh, party god shoved something in his mouth. We sort of see where things split between Quentin and Alice, and he sort of lets her go, and she leaves break pills. So everybody's looking for their piece of magic for their own different reasons, it seems like, but they can all only do it together. Once they come together at some point, that's the interesting thing here. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's it's classic magicians. If you've been if you've watched the magicians before and you're a fan of the show, you will not be disappointed with what you see in the season three premiere. But what you get is something that's very intriguing in different ways for different characters. And if you have favorite characters, and I'm sure you do on the show, you're gonna get a little bit of something for everybody in the show. Like if you're a fan of of Queen Margot and King Elliot, you've got plenty to go with there. If you're just a fan of Quentin and Julia, then you're gonna have plenty there. I mean, even Josh, Josh plays his part, and there's a really good scene between him and Julia in this in this episode where, you know, Josh, for the first time in a while, you see him, he's depressed. And she does something to cheer him up, and they have a very interesting conversation, while of course he's high because that's what he does. But if you're just a fan of certain characters, There's something for you. And then there's also the whole dealing with fairies thing, which they still have to do in Fillory. So, so much to love about The Magicians. One of my favorite shows... On television easily just because there's so many great things about it it's funny it's serious it's thought-provoking there's so much to love about the magicians and that's why when i sit down to watch tv that's one of the first shows that i want to watch because it just brings it's brought it every week since season one since the premiere of season one just been fantastic so i can't wait for the quest to finally begin in the coming weeks That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled recap and review of The Magician Season 3. Up next, plenty of nerd news to get to. We'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether we're headed back in time or staying in the present, it's time for nerd news. Let's talk about a couple of trailers that came out this week and start with the Krypton trailer that was reeled at the Television Critics Association. And basically it shows you the shift in the show and it shows you that this is indeed going to be a story about trying to keep Superman from ever being born by going back and taking care of Sagal, who's played by Cameron Cuff. And we see that really start to come to the forefront. We see our first look at Adam Strange, who's wearing a Detroit Tigers baseball cap. So maybe we're going to see a little bit of stuff that's not on Krypton at all. We get to see a lot of action, very fast paced in this. And the the trailer, the line of the trailer, I'm going to paraphrase this, that really stood out to me is that there's more to our story. Than our planet's destruction, it's how we live. And I'm paraphrasing that from the trailer. And I think that's where the biggest shift in this show has come. And it looks like it's going to be the the right decision. And speaking of the TCA, David S. Goyer actually teased that we could see Green Lantern, we could see the Omega Man, and there's endless possibilities according to them as to who could actually be on Krypton and not all of it's going to be on Krypton. That was the other thing that we found out as well, and they were talking about how it was going to be more comics accurate than parts of the Arrowverse. It's going to be very interesting to see just how this show is received, not just by diehard fans, but by the general public as well that might not know some of these deep-cut characters. So, you know, casting plays a huge role in this, just like it has for any other DC comic series, and they've done very, very well. But when this comes out on March 21st, I'm going to be very curious to see exactly who we get in the first episode, how the tone is set, and how quickly they jump in to the story. Are we going to see a lot of familiar names pop up in that first episode to get fans hooked? Or is that going to be something we're going to be seeing a little bit later on? We're supposedly getting a comic book accurate Doomsday. It's going to be on the show at some point. So my excitement level is already high for Krypton, but ramped up even more now that the possibilities are endless. And they, it seems like they have, what, an eight-year plan, I think, that they said at one point. So, I mean, if the show's that good and they've got that much faith in it, it seemed like it's a show that flew under the radar for so long and now all of a sudden it's this hotly anticipated show. So can't wait to see that coming to Sci-Fi on March the 21st. Something else I can't wait for, and it looks like they're wasting no time with it, is the Teen Titans Go! movie, which we know now has the title Teen Titans Go!, to the movies. And you know, the the very beginning of the trailer we're talking, where Robin's talking about, you know, it was his dream to have your own movie. And that's how you know you were a really superhero. And then they all come out dressed as Wonder Woman and talking about how Wonder Woman's an inspiration. And they kind of poke at that a little bit. And at the end of the trailer where they poke at, well, if Aquaman can get his own movie, so can we. And you just sit then dive into the middle of the trailers them diving into Teen Titans Go. This is what the show is. Is all about and there's not much that we really know about the plot and yeah there's fart joke in there and but it's Teen Titans Go. If you've watched the show, this is the kind of stuff that they do and this is not necessarily adult humor, but can be at times and that's one of the reasons that I've always liked Teen Titans Go. So we get one scene out of there, find out what we're gonna get on July the 27th. That's when the movie actually hits theaters and again we all we know is that the the original cast is going to be voicing this movie, which I think is a really smart move. Why change it when you've already got a really great cast in place? There's no sense in changing it. So loving that fact and loving the fact that we're going to get Teen Titans Go on the big screen, and I'm guessing this isn't going to be the only one. Going to go out on a limb, and I think that's going to happen. Here's something that I didn't expect to see happen, and that is, according to The rap, Vin Diesel is in talks, to join the Bloodshot movie to play the title character of Bloodshot. Now, you remember you heard the stories about Jared Leto was going to play Bloodshot? Well, I guess not now. Looks like Vin Diesel is going to be taking that. And we also know now that Sony's going to make this a five film shared universe with Bloodshot and Harbinger. Of course, you know they have Eric Heiser already working on Harbinger. And then you've got Neil Moritz from The Fast and the Furious that's going to be producing. The Bloodshot movie said so that, you know, makes a familiar face for Vin Diesel. So to me, this makes sense. I never really thought the Jared Leto thing made sense for Bloodshot. So this is a change where I think Vin Diesel just makes more sense. And not because he sort of has the build to pull this off, but he's kind of got that dark brooding thing going on for him, you know what I mean? And, and that suits Bloodshot very well. But there's an emotional side to bloodshot as well. And that's my only concern is that Vin Diesel hasn't exactly played emotional and deep well. And in deep meaning, you know, hard-rooted feelings. I mean, anybody can have their moments in certain movies and maybe in The Fast and the Furious at some point. But that seriousness to him, he has that. The build, he has that. But once things start to really get down to the nitty-gritty, can Vin Diesel pull this off. And maybe he won't have to worry about that in the first movie or even the second movie. Maybe it's just going to be full speed ahead for this bloodshot movie. And it's going to be more of an, I guess an angry tone or, a, or a really ruthless tone. And that would suit Vin Diesel very well. But once the, the onion starts to get peeled a little bit, it'll be very interesting to see if Vin Diesel will pull that off or if he's even involved in the project anymore at that point, because the bloodshot, it, this is something that could easily be changed by Valiant, given how many versions of Bloodshot they've had and they've introduced in recent comics, you could easily go with a different version of Bloodshot. I know you don't want to do that, and you don't, might not necessarily have to, but you know the nanites can find their way in somebody else. You know that. So if something's not working, they can make it make sense where they would have to recast with Vin Diesel. But right now, I certainly think that Vin Diesel is a better choice than Jared Leto for a lot of reasons, and I'm already just so excited. For the Valiant universe to come to the screen anyway. And I know that I'm pretty sure we're getting Harbinger first. So that'll be a nice nice starting point for Valiant. But as many characters as they have. And as much as they could do with Valiant. It just seems like once they hit the screen. Whether it be big or small. It's going to take off. So many Valiant characters are so, so deep and interesting. That I'm really excited what the future holds. For the Valiant universe on the screen. Speaking of another... Character that may do very well on the screen. Kitty Pride. Looks like she has her own movie in the works. Of course, this according to Collider. Apparently the Deadpool director Tim Miller is going to be developing it. Nobody knows if Ellen Page is going to be back. Nobody knows how this is going to be affected by the Disney deal. But before I jump into that, before you get you wonder why this is happening, think about Kitty Pride for a second. This is a character that should have played a lot larger role in the X-Men Days of Future Past movie based on the comics. Now, I know she played a big role, but this wasn't the role that she was necessarily supposed to play if you were talking about it being comics accurate. And I think Days of Future Past may be one of the best, if not the best, of the X-Men movies that they've done so far. So if there was one mark against it, it was that Kitty Pryde didn't play the role that she was necessarily supposed to play in that movie. Now, I'm not saying you have to give her her own movie to write that ship, but if you're looking for a female character to give their own movie to, Kitty Pryde might be one of those ones that makes the most sense. And I mean, if you're talking about the Disney deal and bringing the X-Men into the MCU, Kitty Pryde is a character. They could easily bridge that gap, Ellen Page or not. and And why not? If you can get Ellen Page back, she certainly did a fine job, and I don't see why she couldn't continue to do so she's certainly a, enough of a name that there would be no drop-off there so if you could use her to bridge the gap between the two universes and even and bring them together somehow i mean it just makes sense that she would be the one or one of the ones anyway that could make that happen and i'm not saying you have to use the kitty pride movie as a go-between you could even use it as an end credit scene for the movie to set it up and maybe that's not smart either Because you want to make it more obvious, but you know, end credit scenes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe tend to be pretty important. So you could certainly do it that way. Give her her due, and then towards the end, or in an end credit scene, let her bridge the gap between the two universes. I mean, it just makes sense to me. And then we have various reports from various outlets about the Black Widow movie possibly happening. And they've got somebody that's going to be writing it now, but it's still very in the early stages of development. So that kind of begs the question for me, what are we going to see first? A Kitty Pride movie or a Black Widow movie? And if we do see this Black Widow movie, at what point in her timeline is that going to be? Because I actually think Black Widow is one of those characters that also has untapped potential, where there's so many Black Widow stories that you could tell in a movie. You could get multiple movies out of it, especially as Marvel moves on, in their phases. But, you know, Scarlett Johansson can't play Black Widow forever either. That's the other thing we have to consider. And we also, that, that also tells us where you have to consider she is in the timeline if this happens. But I'm really starting to wonder if this Kitty Pride movie could happen before a Black Widow movie. And that's not good or bad necessarily. I could go for either one, but it's just interesting that fans have been clamoring for a Black Widow movie for so long and you might actually get a Kitty pride movie before that happens and that's not something I think any of us would have expected that's going to do it for nerd news up next going to be talking about the Sword of Ages with comic book writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez it's next on the Down and Nerdy podcast uh, this is Jonathan Delmore tabletop games designer for IDW's Atari line of games and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast Well, you might have heard on the show about a month ago, I reviewed a book called Sword of Ages. So now that issue two is out, I had to get not only the writer, but the artist on the show this week, and it happens to be the same guy. It's Gabriel Rodriguez. Gabriel, how you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, James. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Now, I know that when people are hearing that name, they're thinking, I know Gabriel Rodriguez, and most comic book fans know you, of course, from Lock and Key, but... Now you have sort of Ages, which is a very different book for you and that you've spent a lot of time developing. So what made you want to do this story?
1: Well, this is a kind of story, of story I've been wanting to do since I started reading comics, basically. This kind of high fantasy concept is something that I remember fondly from my first readings because uh, my first approach to adult comics was through European authors, like people like Mobius and Alejandro Yodorowsky. So their work and from other creators influenced me heavily as a, as an artist since a very young age. So having doing uh, s- different sorts of stuff with IW uh, things like lock and key and Onyx and little Nemo for this one, my first uh, project as both a writer and artist, I wanted to do something in that vein because it's something I've never had the chance to explore before. So it was a, a nice switch from previous work and also a, a homage to the stuff I love since I, I was very young
0: so let's talk about that for a second being the writer and the artist on this book I mean that in itself is a huge undertaking but now you're also building quite a vast world here as we've seen the first two issues alone so do you feel like that makes the world building part more difficult or is it easier because you have kind of more direct creative control over that process
1: well the control part is easier of course because you if you have an idea of what you want to do it it's easy to go to to that path but the thing is that the the heavy lifting stuff that the work becomes because of the, the combined efforts of both writing and drawing and also write, writing in a language that's not your own uh, has made this uh, a very tough challenge. I've been uh, like sort of teased for, by editors from IDW from a few years ago about trying to write my own stuff and, and do it, uh, an original book uh, doing both course, but I had to wait till I felt like I was prepared enough to be able to, to get through the challenge. And I think it was wise to, to wait a bit because even though after, I don't know, almost 14 years of working comics so far, um, I still think it's a very tough challenge Has been like more difficult than I hoped it would be in terms of, a, of a, a focus and creative energy and, and, and the work itself. It's a, it's a lot of work when you have to do all the stuff together. But also it's been incredibly refreshing and rewarding uh, to figure out that I've been able to put all the experience from these previous years and and working with so many uh, uh, talented writers has been like the best possible school for me. So I, I am very thankful to have had the opportunity and for the editorial staff to wait for me when it was like the right time to jump into this challenge.
0: One of the things that I really love about Sword of Age is that it has sort of chapter titles that goes on throughout each issue. And along with that and the character designs from issue one, I feel like as a reader, this really helps guide me along in your story. So was that kind of the goal in doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah. In in sort of a way, yes, because I I knew that this was going to be a very uh, ambitious story in terms of scope and amount of design and amount of characters because I've always uh, considered that this might be my only chance to do a full story by myself. I always put myself like in the worst-case scenario. So I wanted to do like, the very best uh, possible effort in creating this entire world and this full cast of characters and try to have it all like, as much uh, pre-produced before I started working in the comic itself. So I took like a, a few months uh, of discussion with my editor, Chris Ryle, uh, before starting the the writing and the drawing of the book, in which we discussed the idea of the story, how I wanted to approach it. And then I spent, like, a lot of time, like, designing uh, landscapes and characters and trying to build it, uh, piece by piece this world in order to get into the story with all of those problems solved before uh, writing the story itself. So that helped a lot, and it became, like, as you say, a, a pretty cool, like, um, bonus stuff for the first issue to to help our readers to get into this world and into those characters and to be able to to guide them through through this like sort of complementary stuff that will help them to dive into the story without getting confused by the uh, the amount of stuff I, I'm very aware that I crammed a lot of stuff in very few pages and that was something I was very aware of when I started it, like sort of designing the, this project so we try to make it any way as friendly and engaging as possible.
0: One character we see a lot of is Avalon and when I when I think of her the first word that comes to mind is independent but I feel like she's so much more than that so what's the first word that comes to mind when you're thinking about Avalon and do you think that essentially growing up in two different worlds at once kind of helped shaped who she is now? Yeah in a way I
1: thought of her as a I'm a huge fan of adventure comics, so I wanted to create a character that could drive adventure in different levels, so in a way she's a sort of a stranger in her own world, and she has to discover her place in that world, and also have to discover her place in the mission that is is put in front of her as a challenge to to help the people of her world to to find a way through a menacing times that are coming together. Around uh, key characters of the story, so I wanted her to be uh, a young, uh, sort of uh, uh, energy-driven woman with a uh, little fear, a little, in a way, very stubborn and uh, and quite uh, irresponsible to sometimes with us, with ourselves, but also driven by high ideals and wanting to do the right thing, but very aware that sometimes the right thing is not exactly clear and you have to discover what the right thing is. So I try to approach to all the, those kind of topics by making her a, a very young woman that's sort of discovering herself along as she discovers her role in the story, but also a woman that has, has prepared herself throughout the life to, for this challenge. So he's sort of aware of the risks she's facing and she has to discover if she's up to the challenge that's put in front of her and also she'll have to discover if she can do it by herself or will need help throughout the journey.
0: Talking to writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez of Sword of Ages from IDW Publishing, of course, Issues 1 and 2 are out right now at your local comic book shops and digitally. Now, Gabriel, a little bit of a spoiler here for anybody that hasn't read Issue 2 yet. Since the book is called Sword of Ages, you kind of knew as a reader we would get to a sword eventually, and we do in Issue 2, and when that moment finally came, I got a really serious King Arthur, Sword in the Stone vibe, So, but in a very different way, though. So talk about bringing that moment together on the page and how it really showed a different side of Avalon at the same time as well.
1: Yeah, well, uh, when we started discuss- discussing the concept for this story with Chris Ryle, I'm a huge fan of Arthurian mythology, and one of my favorite uh, movies ever is Excalibur from John Burman. So... I wanted to have a chance to 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 play with that mythology, but in a way that felt r- refreshing. Originally, I started developing the concept for this project as a sort of post-apocalyptic version of the Arthurian myth, myth set in the distant future. But when I start crafting the story, I realized that that sort of ser- set a lot of, of, like, forced plot points that were uh, difficult to, to solve and could be too similar also to the work that uh, Brian Boland and Mike Bard did in Camelot 3000, which is a comic book that I loved a lot. So then I shifted the focus and decided that this would be a prequel to the Arthurian mythology. This would be the first, the very first time that uh, the the Sword of Ages come to play. That later will be known as Excalibur, but at this point it doesn't even have that name yet. So that's the way in which I I, I found. Uh, Uh, A place and a point of view to tell this story and play with this mythology but with absolute freedom and has been great Uh, in the moment in which we decided to approach the story from that point of view it became like uh, uh, an open playground in which you can try to uh, switch any all the points of view from the mythology that's familiar to you and to create something fresh and new but also that should appeal to the same vibe and and to concepts and characters that people know and and love. So, uh, has been has been uh, great to to get into it like that. And so, whatever whatever vibe that you could uh, feel related to this sword in the stone myth is absolutely intentional. I've been uh, very open about it's uh, from the get-go, so you shouldn't be surprised uh, But that, but there are also going to be a lot of surprises in the way in which the story is crafted.
0: One thing I actually really liked about the book, too, is that not only are you creating characters and worlds here, religion also actually plays a really big part in this book as well, it seems like, and it seems like it's a theme in the first couple of issues. We get to meet some of the white monks of Chaldea in this second issue, so will we see that theme continue in that discussion and how much will we learn about these different beliefs and future issues?
1: Well, in a way I think I wanted to tackle in this story is the conflicts between, uh, different kinds of motivations and what drives you to do what you think it's the right thing. Uh, in a way I, I, I doesn't see this story as a conflict between good and, and evil, but most about uh, conflicting points of view regarding what good and evil are. So, um, Religion is going to play a part in it. Politics is going to play a part in it, and some sort of basic uh, philosophy point of view are going to be engaged in, in this conflict. Because I think ultimately this is a story about about how you decide what is the right thing to do and which are the are the ideas that you're willing to fight for. So. Uh, the idea of having the, the forces in conflict in, in this story is to try to approach to that to that uh, conflict from different points of view, and and trying to be as as much into the grey areas as possible, uh, rather than getting into this is black and this is white and they are opposite.
0: I think that, that there's a point in issue two actually where where that's very clear that you're kind of making it a gray issue when we see the, the three characters and they're going on this, actually the four characters going on the quest to find the mm-hmm. sword and they have that discussion. So is the, did that kind of open the door to that gray area?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's something that probably is going to be like a more, more explicitly explored in the future. This is uh, this is like the first step into a larger story. So as long as readers support us, there's going to be more, more exploration of the world of, of Sword of Ages. But the, this is uh, like the, the, the basic conflict I want to explore throughout the entire story. This uh, idea that sometimes you think you have figured out what good and evil are, and through experience you realize that there's a lot of nuance about that. And, and that you have to take responsibility of it. It's not a thing of deciding what's good and bad up front, but something that you have to learn. And that's the, the hero journey I, I want to explore in this, in this epic.
0: One of the things I love about books like this is that all the animals and the mythical creatures can actually talk and communicate with humans and each other. So i got to ask you, Gabriel, if animals suddenly started talking right here in 2018, how do you think we would respond as a society?
1: I think we should have to respond with a lot of apologies because probably they're going to uh, uh, talk into our faces all the bad stuff that we used to do about our environment because we can can allow ourselves to ignore them because they can't talk. So I think uh, there should be at least a day throughout the years in which animals uh, should be able to talk and and let us know all the things that we're doing wrongly because it would be very helpful for us.
0: That, that is an amazing idea. I think we need to figure out a way to make that happen.
1: Yeah. We, we desperately need before the – we still have animals around, and if we keep doing things wrong, we're not going to have them around us anymore. So I'm hoping for my kids and grandkids to have the chance to meet all these fantastic creatures that surround us. So in a way, I think that the talking animals in, in my story are sort of a – a homage to that, a way to, to create awareness about the environment and to realize that we're always uh, framed by a larger picture that's very important for us to to survive as a species and as a civilization.
0: Definitely looking forward to seeing what a role they're going to play in future issues then. So now we know that there is kind of a greater darkness that's been discussed here, and you were talking about the what's good and what's evil, and that's eventually going to be dealt with in the story, but it feels like Morgan and the Templars seem to have a little bit more of an imminent threat right now, talking about the political angle. So yeah. are his motives as simple as dominant rule? Because I get the gut feeling that there's much more to it than that.
1: There's going to be much more to that, because um, basically, especially... Uh, in a way like uh, military forces try to sell themselves as solvers of problems in a way that's very black and white and behind that there's an entire construction of an idea of what's right and I think that when you think that the the way in which you provide the answer is force um, is the most arguable arguable, uh, point of view. You need to discuss why force is worthy to be used and when you Give that for granted you make like the largest the biggest mistakes so I think it's it's important for me to have a, the chance to explore the, the, the political point of view of the Templars in this story as I think in a way they're going to be a symbol of lots of, of forces that we've seen throughout history that when you you see through the veil of, of history and their context you start to realize why they are why they are as they are. And that's a way to learn from their their mistakes. So uh, probably at the beginning of the story, uh, people may think that we're presenting them in a very, like, uh, absolute way. But as long as we get to engage with the characters, we're supposed to be figuring out layers uh, uh, beyond their, their initial presentation. So I'm hoping that we'll have the chance to figure out that in every faction involved in this story, there's going to be good people and bad people in, in every in, in, in every single of the factions. And then you'll uh, realize that the chances to empathize with the opponent are going to be like more available for both the readers and the character in the story, and they're going to add layers of complexity of the way in which the plot will be revolving in the future.
0: Good. That's definitely the vibe I was getting. So if that's what you're going for, then you you hit that out of the park for sure. Yeah, in a way, I
1: think in, in comics you have the the difficulty that the only thing that you lack is time and space. Time to to tell the story and space to because you only have twenty pages in each issue, so you have to be very aware of why you're putting the stuff you're putting into these few pages, mm-hmm. and especially when you're trying to be build something as large as as this kind of concept is. So I'm trying my best to be. And and this is something that I constantly discuss with the editors trying to polish the writing and and polish the way in which I'm laying out the story to make each scene worthy. And in a way, this decision of putting titles to each chapter, to each scene in in the story is uh, a way to help myself to to get to that, to make uh, each scene to fulfill a role uh, throughout the story and to take as much of the characters as possible in, in the few space that we have to, to, to tell to tell the events that are happening throughout.
0: Before I let you go, Gabriel, I have to ask you about the Lock and Key TV series that's going to be coming with all the casting announcement we, announcements that we've had happening and so much news coming out. What is your excitement level for the series, and what's one element you feel like they have to capture for a true adaptation?
1: Well, I have to say that I've already seen the, the uh, uh, work-in-progress cut of the pilot for the Lock and Key series. So as we're waiting for it to be finally approved or rejected by, by, the, by, by the network, um, we're very happy with what we got because all people involved in the project was very aware that the core of the, of the charm and the magic of Lock and Key reside on its characters and they were very careful in, in adapting these characters for a new media but staying true to the core of what they are. So I think if the show happens, and I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that it will happen, um, I think uh, fans of Lock and Key are going to be very satisfied with it because they're going to recognize this, these characters they love and the people that doesn't, it's probably going to be be charmed by it because it's it's uh, incredibly well done. The talent uh, assembled uh, around this project has been like top notch from production to the to each one of the actors. So the the work it, they have done is amazing. So I'm really hoping that people will have the chance to to share it with us.
0: Make sure you're going out and getting *Sort of Ages, Issues 1 and 2, which are available right now at your local comic book shops and digital retailers as well. Speaking of Lock and Key, be on the lookout for that series. We'll keep you up to date on that in this show. And not only that, there are several volumes of Lock and Key that you can get caught up on before the series starts. Find out more about those at idwpublishing.com. It's writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you very
1: much, James. It has been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: One of the things I loved about that conversation with Gabriel was the dive into the actual creative process that he has. And every little bit that has gone into this story, and if you've read issues one or two or both, you understand that the this is a world that he's created here that's larger than a lot of worlds and a lot of comics. What he's been able to do in the first two issues alone— And to know that this world is still expanding, it's crazy. And then there's a science fiction element that we didn't even get a chance to discuss. It's also involved there. So, so much going on in Sword of Ages and so many characters to love about that book. Make sure you're getting issues one and two right now from IDW Publishing. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Gabriel Rodriguez for joining me this week. Also be on the lookout for special content. I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., For the big DC, in-DC event, talking about Black Lightning and so many more things, talking to a lot of your favorite writers and actors and stars from the DC Comics world. So I'll be bringing a lot to you on that at downandnerdypodcast.com, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. So be on the lookout for that. And future shows are going to have so much content from DC, you're really going to love it. But don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.